Okay, uh, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, welcome to Free Association. Uh, this is another clip show. I'm just gonna I'm gonna do these three days a week, and I'm just gonna let whatever happens happens. I'm not planning any of it, so it's a matter of whatever's on BitChute or Odyssey, really. Uh, I'll look on BitChute now just to see what's happening. I've just run over to the cafe that I use. And ordered a cup of coffee so if i'm slurping in between clips that's the reason why and uh yeah if i can get here for nine o'clock my time on tuesday wednesday and thursday then i'm a happy man just for uh, no more than an hour probably half an hour somewhere between those two so let's have a look at the uh, news and politics section. So still some genocide things popping up on BitChute, inevitably. All right, some British politics, British political stuff. So, start with British politics. So you've got a lot going on with Boris Johnson at the moment. Uh, I want to ask you now about Partygate. Lots of people talking about what's going on within the Conservatives, question marks about whether or not perhaps there might be a vote of no confidence next week uh, for Boris Johnson. But the stark reality is, isn't it, given that these questionnaires have now been handed to the leader, the deputy leader of your party, that you could be facing uh, bids for a new leader. They've both said that they will resign if they are found to have breached COVID rules. How worried are you about that? Uh, well, they have integrity in their heart, and that's why they've said they would uh, resign. Keir Starmer is not doing this for anything other than protecting his own personal integrity and his own credibility. That's what he said he would do. The Prime Minister should have resigned by now. We're now a country who is a government that's paralysed by this uh, issue with a Prime Minister that's clinging on while his backbenchers are fighting with each other, while his ministers uh, are trying to persuade them to continue to support him. We have a cost of living uh, crisis. We have the uh, airline industry uh, and travel disruptions that we've just uh, spoken about. So something has to be done here in order to try and get the government back on track. It's completely paralysed uh, by this issue. Um, I don't think there's any false equivalence we should be creating here in terms of what happened uh, and the accusations that happened in Durham with uh, industrial scale party and Downing Street with an ethics advisor, the government's own ethics advisor, saying Prime Minister has to explain why he's not um, ridiculed the ministerial code, not broken uh, the ministerial code. This is now paralysed the entirety of government for four or five months now, and the only way that it's going to become uh, back to operating as a government and get back to the day job is if the Prime Minister does the decent thing. It looks as if he will have to be forced out, whereas uh, Keir Starmer and Angela Aynard have done the decent thing with integrity at his heart and said if they are given a fine, uh, they will stand down, and that's the right thing to do. Right, that will be Ian Murray. And this is Ian Murray again. He's a Labour MP. Don't know what. Don't know which constituency. We just wanted to quickly go to speak to the uh, Labour's Shadow Secretary of State for Scotland, uh, the MP Ian Murray. A very good morning to you. Um, I was just wondering what you have made about uh, what the situation with regards to the travel industry. In the, in the country, and um, you're saying that the government needs to take responsibility. Really, the, the, the travel sector has had plenty of advance notice with this. They've been given government money, and really it's up to them to take responsibility for this, frankly, shambles at the airport. Uh, well, I think we need the airlines, the travel industry, the trade unions, the employees and the government to come together to try and resolve these issues. Don't forget that the cliff edge of Fernbowl ended at the end of last year. We've been saying for some time that that should have been extended for the industries. It would take longer to recover. And what's now happened is we have this sort of big bang recovery in the travel industry. And they're struggling with staff and the numbers and volumes of people. But what we've seen in the last 24 hours, of course, is a, a transport secretary who's been picking up the telephone to colleagues to try and help the Prime Minister rather than trying to resolve this travel crisis for many millions of families.
Uh, right. And so where do you see this going? I mean, at the moment, here we are on, on the eve of a, of a national four-day celebration. Lots of people flying in for that. Lots of people on half-term wanting to fly out to enjoy this week. Uh, any immediate um, sucker for people to look forward to? Well, it's really difficult, isn't it? Because if you don't have the people to process bags and to process um, check-ins, then it really becomes a, a real problem. Can I give you an example? I'm very close to Edinburgh Airport, who's uh, very close to my own constituency. They've gone from absolutely no passengers whatsoever uh, during some months during lockdown uh, to almost a million passengers, which is almost uh, as much as they were having on their average month uh, before the pandemic. So that kind of scaling up is really quite difficult. The travel industry have also been warning about this for some time too. They knew it was coming and they seen what happened at the Easter break and they have been asking for the government to assist and the government to put policies in place that would help them to recruit staff and to get them through security checks as quickly as possible. So there's blame on all sides here but we need the government to step up and whilst it's paralysed by the Transport Secretary spending his time persuading colleagues to support the Prime Minister and we've got a government who's got its eye off the ball when the travel industry and the Trade unions and the employees are also please give us a hand and help us out. Well, Secretary, he is calling the morning to have a word today. Give it a minute, give it a minute. It is a railway station, so some noise at some point. Here we go. Try again. They are coming together, which is what you're calling for. Well, that's uh, good news, and I hope there is some uh, action on the back of that to try and help uh, these immediate problems, but also in the short to uh, medium term as well. The staff shortages uh, are clear for all to see. It's probably uh, too many staff have left the industry uh, over the course of a period of time since uh, uh, lockdown. Uh, and indeed, uh, furlough ended when we were calling for uh, the long tail of those industries who've been hardest hit, those industries that take longest to recover, to be given additional support to try and deal with these particular issues. Everyone knew half-term would be coming uh, this week. Everyone knew Easter was coming and the uh, airlines, the, the airports and the travel industry have struggled to cope because of a lack of uh, people. Don't forget many people are still uh, ill with COVID. I have a couple of members of my own staff who uh, have tested positive for Shoot. Although the Wi-Fi is pretty reasonable here, it shoots tends to be temperamental. Right. So this is the Duran from yesterday, which is. Uh, Alex, Alex, and Gonzalo Lira. Just having a conversation about Ukraine. I listened to some of it yesterday, and yeah, the first 15 minutes or so I shall play, and that'll take me through till 25 past nine, and then I'll find something else.
her life with, uh, with her cough. Absolutely. <laughs> I've had this cough for ages, by the way. I don't know what, what it's causing it, but anyway, there we go. In all other respects, <laughs> well, and myself as always. I'm just joking. <laughs> yeah, I'm just teasing Alex. Yeah, just just <laughs> we have with us we have with us the Oracle of London, the, the genius Alexander Kurtz, and we have with us another genius who is in handcuff, Mr. Gonzalo Lira. How are both of you gentlemen doing today? I'm Absolutely. doing fantastic. fantastic. Oh sorry, Alexander. No, no, we're both I think I think we're both fantastic. Let's, great, okay. Everyone is fantastic. Let's jump into it because we have a lot we have a lot of uh, stuff to, to cover, a lot of ground to cover. We'll talk about the uh, the military situation, what's going on on the ground. We'll talk about the geopolitical situation and, of course, the uh, economic situation and uh, talk about the sanctions, the oil embargo, and all of these uh, great things. First, let's welcome everybody who's watching us on Odyssey. Welcome, everyone, on Odyssey. Welcome to everybody who's watching us on Rumble. Welcome to everyone who is watching us on YouTube. And welcome to everyone who is in great locals chat how is everyone doing in our chats on locals and let's just say a quick hello to our moderators lady cosmica is in the house moderating zarael zarael in cyprus i hope i'm not giving too much information away but uh, zarael how are you doing in uh, in my home country hello to reckless abandon and um who else is helping us moderate? I think that is every and Gonzalo Lira. Gonzalo Lira number two is <laughs> Yeah, us. yeah. I'm, 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 like I was saying before the show started, you know, like getting the wrench just fills me with this weird activistic glow of happiness. It's like, it's like one of those things like like, yes, I'm a blue wrench. Thank God, you know, it's those little things. You know, it's it's pressing the little button to get the little pellet of food. You know, that, that's the kind of feeling I get. So anyway, it's great to be here. Uh, and I try to moderate. You are. Yeah. Moderate now, Gonzalo. <laughs> that's it. Oh, yeah. No, I'm, I'm going to moderate with an iron fist. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> anyway. Um, okay, let's, oh, let's jump into it, gentlemen. Yeah, yeah, let's, let's get started. Uh, uh, sorry, Alex. Quick, let just me just say. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I just want to say one quick thing, and then I'll let you speak. Uh, for all the Super Chat questions, I see a lot of questions are coming in. We'll try to answer as much as we can. Whenever we can't answer, we're going to do a dedicated show to our questions um, that are on Rumble Odyssey. Uh, Rumble Odyssey, YouTube, and Locals. <laughs> all right, Gonzalo, go ahead. Yeah, I just want to tell everybody that, and I sent Alex the link to it. I want to just give a recommendation uh, for Military Summary, which is a channel that is giving daily briefings on the state of the battlefield and it is the best uh channel that i've come across so far i can't recommend it enough it's run by a guy called dima out in belarus and he had just a couple thousand subscribers until i started listening to him sorry about that hang on um and he is just fantastic uh and just full disclosure i have absolutely no financial relationship with the guy or any kind of uh, relationship. I'm just a fanboy and I just want to pass it along because I think it's really useful and that people should be watching his content because it gives such an accurate representation of the state of the battlefield on a daily basis that I don't think that you'll find anybody better in that regard. Right. Okay, let's begin uh, since we're talking about the battlefield. Mm. Well, well, indeed, can I just say uh, yesterday we got in the British mainstream media the first realistic account of what's going on in the war, and it was on the BBC. Now, I would say I know a lot of people have very strong feelings about the BBC. I share them, but it was written. Many, many people get their news from the BBC. And I know that this article, which has appeared on the website, and I believe there was also an accompanying television uh, uh, report, though I haven't seen that. I don't watch BBC news. Haven't done so for a long time. But anyway, this article um, is created, it's buzzing. You know, people in Britain on Twitter, wherever messaging, they're absolutely buzzing around this, including many people who up to this moment have assumed that Ukraine is winning. And it contains comments like this Russia isn't fighting a 
campaign of attrition. It's waging a war of oblivion. And for the moment, it is winning. So that was one thing. It then contained comments about the fact that in one place, a, a little town called Rubizhne, which talks an awful lot about Russian artillery, and it mentions how the Russians were shelling Rubizhne at a rate of 1,500 shells a day. It then has interviews with Ukrainian soldiers, and Gonzalo will be interested to learn that every single Ukrainian soldier interviewed by the BBC was not from the Ukrainian regular army. He was from the Ukrainian National Guard. So clearly people were chosen for their reliability. Nonetheless, they talk about how the situation was hell is hellish, and uh, uh, there are now admissions that some of the soldiers are suffering shell shock. So it's no different from all the things we've been saying about the war, but it's now official. It's on the BBC. So yeah, yeah. All British people. So yeah. no, no news, news for people like us, but shock news for millions of people. Yeah, something similar happened last night on Fox News that Mark Milley, General Mark Milley, who's the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, said that uh, it was up to the Ukrainians to negotiate, but a negotiated uh, peace that seems like in the cards, and words to that effect. He's basically signaling that uh, the cause is lost. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's very clear. And so they're moving on to the second phase, their second phase, which is, of course, they want to set up some sort of insurgency in Ukraine which I personally believe is going to fail miserably because the, the people in the territories captured by the Russians, they are ethnic Russians. They consider themselves Russian. Uh, they speak Russian as their first language. The, the, I, I've said before, you know, the hypothetical babushka, babushka rather, sitting there in the town square and a Russian tank shows up and the tank commander jumps off, he's going to look just like her grandson and he's going to sound and talk just like her grandson. You know? yeah. And so it's, a, it's, it's not, um, the Americans have this bizarre notion that they can set up some sort of insurgency, sort of like in Syria, sort of like what happened to them in Afghanistan, and that's just laughable. It's just not going to happen. So the good thing, it seems to me, is that, is that they are finally, you know, you know pulling off the, the band-aid and revealing the fact that this is a disaster. It's, it's 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 a disaster and it's a needless loss of life. That's the thing that drives me into the wall. Needless absolutely. loss of life. Absolutely. On the topic of loss of life, I should say that the uh, BBC report mentions that the Ukrainians have stopped counting their casualties. Oh yeah. I mean, oh, yeah. I mean, you know, they're, 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 you know, that they just so when Zelensky says fifty to one hundred men a day, which I think we all agree is almost certainly a, a ludicrous underestimate. In fact, it seems the Ukrainians themselves may not may not have detailed information any longer about how many people they're losing every day. I mean, well, just before, it, yeah, just before on, on this topic, just before we came on, I saw a uh, drone footage video from the Russians of that offensive that the Ukrainian stage in Kherson, yeah. which was yeah. <coughs> militarily pointless uh, and, and was a failure. And, and there was no clear reason as to why they did it, but they did it. And uh, the bodies were strewn all over the place as the, as the, as the drone was uh, flying over them. And it was clearly Ukrainian, because we tell, because of the armbands. And yeah. uh, you know, all these young men were killed for nothing, you know? Uh, I counted off of the drone footage about uh, slightly under a dozen people. And it, it just, I, I just found it shocking. But, that's what's going on. The, you know, the, the Ukrainians are losing. And also, sorry to, to just go on. In Azovstal, there are reports, the Azovstal steelworks, that there was a, a refrigeration uh, a compartment that was not functioning, but it was being used to store bodies. And they found 152 Ukrainian soldiers there. The, the, um, the, the spokesman for the Russian Ministry of Defense said this this morning. So I believe it because when they, when the Russians say something, they they're not lying and they have just they, they are far more proof with, uh, with actual proof of you know evidence of what they are saying. They they never go out on a limb and say something that is not a hundred percent. And so they're saying this. They're also saying that their sappers had to disarm 
uh, four of these bodies that apparently had booby traps. Yeah. And the this is coming from the uh, Ministry of Defense spokesman. He says that the intention was to have these four bodies uh, blow up and that this would be, you know, another indication of the savagery of Russian soldiers, that sort of thing. Uh, but it appears that these 152 bodies were not were killed in combat or as the result of combat uh, and had been placed there by their Ukrainian comrade before they eventually surrendered from Rostovstal. Yeah. Uh, I've heard that. All right, that's, that's the first 10 minutes of the Duran. And uh, I've got a little bit to play of... Where were, where were uh, a little bit of James Corbett to play as well. Uh, this is from Bitchute as well. 15 things I've learned in 15 years. those sorts of things that those sorts of things are not going to change just because you have encountered some information online don't expect it to insight number two almost no one is actually anti-war or actually pro-freedom and uh, i think that's not particularly surprising to me but still interesting to have observed in real time nonetheless back in 2007 2008 when i first started doing this you will recall it was bush and the neocons and their war of terror and there was genuinely an anti-war movement at that time, but that magically evaporated in 2009. Suddenly, anti-war, schmanti-schwar, whatever, who cares? Bomb Afghanistan, expanded into Pakistan, let's, you know, got to keep up the occupation of Iraq, let's move into Libya, Somalia, whatever, just let the bombs rain. It's humanitarian love bombs, responsibility to protect those people with the bombs that we're dropping on them. And now, of course, it's Libya, Shmibia. Who cares about the open-air slave markets? Whatever. Anyway, uh, I suppose, again, that wasn't mind-blowing to discover 
I probably suspected back in 2007, 2008 that the anti-war movement wasn't really anti-war, but it still, nonetheless, was interesting to see. Um, similarly, people who espouse the, uh, the idea of freedom, oh, I'm for freedom, sure, I'm against the vaccine mandates or what have you, in the right circumstances, scratch the surface a little, and most of those people will turn out to be hardcore anti-freedom. Yes, of course we need rules and mandates and regulations on this. Of course we need it, just as long as the good guy's in power. <laughs> uh, all right, which leads, I think, to insight number three, which is people want to be ruled. People want to be ruled. And that's a hard one for me to wrap my mind around, because I could get that, yeah, people who were saying they were anti-war weren't really anti-war and things like that, but I guess fundamentally I don't want to be ruled. So it is strange still for me to encounter people who genuinely want it, and I won't attempt to psychoanalyze them here today, what family background issues they have or whatever that has made them into the types of people that want to be ruled. But at any rate, they do exist, and there are there's a significant section of the public that really does just want a leader to tell them what to do so that they can just go along and live their lives. All right, I'm going to attempt to reserve judgment on that mentality. But anyway, anyway, it is good to know that that exists in a large section of the public so that we can at least factor that into our planning for communities of attention or whatever else we have in mind for solutions in the future. Uh, number four, everyone's your best friend until you say something you, they disagree with. <laughs> I've definitely encountered this one over the years. James, I love your work. I love what you do. Except, you know, that thing that you said about that. I can't. Oh, I, I don't think I can even listen to you anymore. Uh, those are the funniest emails that I get. Is man, I've loved your work. I've listened to you for years. I've listened to you since the beginning, man. <laughs> Probably not true. But anyway, it, all the emails start like that. And then dot, dot, dot. But I can't believe you said this thing the other day. <laughs> I'm left thinking, really, you've been so you've been listening to me for how many years? And now the very first time you have ever even sought to say hello to me is to say, I can't believe you said that thing. <laughs> it's just not a human way of interacting, but it's the expected way online, unfortunately. Anyway, <laughs> so, yes, I know I, I don't take effusive praise or effusive criticism seriously. I, I think both are not coming from a place of good faith. Um, so I take it with a grain of salt. Uh, number five, most people think this, whatever you want to call it, the independent media space and the things that it's, the points that are being raised in it, is a spectator sport. And the obvious, the, the zenith of that, that idea is, of course, the cue, uh, uh, the, the, the refrain, just grab the popcorn, enjoy the show, guys. Oh, yay. It's just a spectator sport. Just just enjoy the show. And, of course, that is absolutely at base. That is fundamentally what the corporate report has always been opposed to. This is not a spectator sport. Do not just passively consume information on a screen and think that that's your contribution to the world. You can change the world. You can affect things going on, at the very least, in your life, in your household, in your community. Let's expand that out. You can change things, but you have to participate. This is not a spectator sport. Uh, number six, people do not rationally arrive at conclusions uh, so much as they feel the right answer to things and then rationalize uh, the, those feelings after the fact. And this, uh, again, I'm sure this is not a profoundly new insight. I'm sure we've all seen or heard or experienced this before. But again, I've had... A lot of experience dealing with this over the years. People who feel that they know the right answer and then, you know, details, details. And uh, an obvious one that sticks out in my mind is the environmental uh, issues that are raised. Uh, you can talk till you're blue in the face and lay out all this data and, and talk about the problems with the carbon dioxide as the thermostat for the planet kind of argument that is, you know, the global warming nonsense. But people will be like, but James, just look at what humans are doing. It must be doing something to the planet. It must be doing something to the atmosphere. Well, okay, yes, but that's not an argument for carbon dioxide being a global thermostat, right? Which also leads into a sort of an adjunct to this, which is that, well, yeah, but even if that's not true, still, wouldn't it be good if we didn't use fossil fuels? All right, well, now you're kind of changing subject. Now you're implying that it's a good thing to buy in order to get to the real truth or something along those lines. No, sorry. 
that's not the truth movement that I signed up to. Let's, let's, let's go along with lies as long as it leads to a conclusion that we'd like. No, that's not how that works. Um, number seven, the more you learn, the less you know. And I, I, uh, I remember Johan Tengra brought this up in my conversation with him recently when we were talking about this, that people who are the best read, the most well-researched, who know the most about a given topic are also the least likely to definitively say, this is this and that is that and that's it. That's all you need to know one pithy little statement that summarizes the whole thing. No, it's, well, okay, there's this, but then there's this over here that contradicts that, and then this, in, in this context, it means this. The more you know, the more you understand that it, the, the, the less you know, essentially. Of course, we've all heard that. It's very true, um, which is why I, when I hear someone pounding their chest about, I know this, this is exactly how 9-11 went down, or whatever they're saying, um, no, you don't know. And if you do know, it means you're in on the plot. So either way, I'm going to run away from you as fast as possible. But I think when people are chest-thumping like that, they are either deceiving themselves or they're deceiving you. Either way, I don't take them seriously. But the flip side of this, and, and I, I, think it's, I think it's an adjunct to the previous point, but the next point is actually, it sounds contradictory, but it isn't. When you do know something, when you genuinely do know something, you should be more confident about stating that thing clearly and openly whatever people are going to say about you and I, I i now again i have 15 years of hindsight here of seeing the things that i was trying to broach in 2007 2008 that i know sounded crazy it sounded insane and i knew people were gonna that that's way to you're being crazy but i knew what what was coming the transhumanism the casual society all these things no 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 you're crazy that's not gonna happen and i uh, maybe I took too much of that on board and was too, too uh, couched what I was saying too much. No, I, I shouldn't, you know, obviously it could go a lot of different ways. But no, I, now looking back, I see, I did see so much of this coming and I did try to warn about it, but I, maybe not hard enough. I should have been more confident in stating what I stated. So, for example, I had the 2009 medical martial law episode where I laid it out. The quarantines, the, the infrastructure for vaccine mandates, the PHEIC of the IHR, the WHO, all of these acronyms, which I now know off by heart, and hopefully, hopefully you do too. But I didn't say it, state it enough. I didn't say it frequently enough. I wasn't the one sitting there on the... The, the, the parapets blasting it out. Biosecurity's coming. The medical martial law states are right around the corner because that would have been crazy back in 2009, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19. Suddenly, 2020, it's the self-evident, plain, obvious truth that why didn't we see this coming all along? Well, some of us did. So now, now I know to be absolutely 100%, I know the brain chip, transhuman, cashless, CBDC, social credit, uh, digital everything nightmare. I know what is being slotted into place, and I know the only deliberation that is going on at the highest echelons of power right now is how best to introduce the public to this. So technology is already here. It's just a question of how to roll it out. So I, I, I know now not to even couch it or, uh, you know, oh, I know this sounds crazy, but blah, blah, blah. No, this is what's coming. They all—it already exists, and they are just working about how to introduce it to you. So I have to be more forceful about that. All right. Uh, the next insight, number nine: there is a certain section of the public that is truly incapable of understanding satire, parody, or humor in general. And that—that is a weird one for me because, as you might have noticed, I have a sense of humor. Maybe you don't like my sense of humor, but at any rate, I do have one, and it's not forced. It is just part of me. I. I'm just like that in real life. I make jokes. I am sarcastic. I do. That's who I am. So, of course, it is reflected in the, the type of media that I create and everything else that I create. Um, but it is weird for me to get feedback from people who, like, literally didn't understand. You, you got that that thing was satire, right? I wasn't actually saying that. Or, or you, you understand that was a parody, right? You do understand that was a joke, right? And that there are there genuinely are people who genuinely do not understand that. That, to me, is very strange. Again, I understand different people like different types of styles of comedy and what have you, but people who don't recognize comedy, that's weird to me. And then, even beyond that, I, the people who do recognize that something is meant to be satirical, but don't understand what, what is being satirized, who is the target of that satire, what is being said by that satire, why would you say it that way? Are you making fun of those people? No, I'm making fun of those people. Like, do you understand? <laughs> anyway, it's mind-boggling to me how utterly people 
people are capable of missing the point. <laughs> but trust me, they are. <laughs> I get that kind of feedback all the time. Um, the next insight, number 10, the most important research, things that are vitally important to know, can still become so dumbed down as they become well-known that they almost become useless or sometimes even counterproductive. Okay, case in point. You'll own nothing and you'll be happy, 2030, right? We all know this is the Great Reset Agenda. This, I mean, Klaus Schwab probably said that, right? There must be a clip of him saying that. Or maybe it was in his book or something. I don't know. I didn't read it. Whatever. Who cares, right? All I know is Great Reset equals you'll own nothing and you'll be happy. Uh, because I saw that one clip of that five-second clip from that World Economic Forum video with that stock footage actor smiling as the words go across the screen, right? So that's where it's from. I wonder who that guy is. I've actually seen people in the comment section wondering who that guy on screen is. That's that's a stock footage actor. <laughs> Basic media literacy, people. <laughs> we have to do better than this. Anyway, so, yeah, so what, wait, where did that phrase come from? What was the context? Who actually said that or wrote that? And where does it, can I read it? Where did it come from? What does it mean? What was the point of that? Again, I think it is an important concept and it is an important thing to understand, but it is more important probably to understand it in its actual Hello? context and what was being said and by who and what relation they have to this whole World Economic Forum thing. And no, this isn't the Great Reset Agenda. And if we just simplify it down to that one phrase, we run into some problems. Like when people take Bill Gates, remember, at the TED Talk where he said he was going to kill people with vaccines or something like that. Anyway, I've seen the 20-second clip from that TED Talk. You know, he said, you know, vaccination goes up, population goes down. Anyway, he's talking about killing people with vaccines, right? Well, <laughs> that may be the agenda. <laughs> but I don't think that's what he was actually, literally trying to communicate there. No, do we know the context of that? And his citing of Hans Rosling and better health outcomes lead to families having fewer children because they're more confident in their ability to their children to survive and blah, blah, blah. At any rate, there is a sort of a bigger story to that. And when we simplify it down to something that is actually not what Bill Gates was intending to say, um, then then that's just red, juicy red meat for the fact checkers. And actually, that's not what Bill Gates was saying. And, and unfortunately, you will lose more people than you will win by pointing to things that are not technically accurate. So anyway, I, I think this is a big point. I think... It's a particular pet peeve of mine. People who take things out of context, don't understand, just go on catchphrases rather than actual understanding of issues. I know it's a big hassle to actually read things or actually watch an entire lecture or something, but it needs to be done. Number 11, uh, I think following up to number 10 there, uh, number 11, people get their news from headlines. And we are all guilty of this to some extent. I read hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of headlines every day. I read dozens and dozens of articles, but I read hundreds of headlines. So uh, unfortunately, there's a thing called source blindness, where you see or you read about something, you pick up some sort of fact, and then later on, when you're recalling that fact, you don't remember where you saw that. Where, like, where I forget where I heard that, but anyway, I know this thing. Unfortunately, we read a headline, we think we understand what that headline is, or we understand the context of it, we, we know what that story is about, we incorporate that as if it's a fact. Later on, we recall that as if it is a fact. Oh, I don't remember where I read it. But anyway, I know that this happened. And you might not know anything about the real story there. At the very least, I'm sure we've all had the experience of reading a, a story, actually going and reading a story and finding that the headline directly contradicts it, has nothing to do with it, is only tangentially related to the story, that the real story is buried way down deep and the headline get, gets you to miss the point. We've all experienced that. But even, I mean, even the fact, uh, uh, there are so many different ways in which you can be deceived by a headline or a headline is not the story. And the worst, worst, worst encapsulation of this problem is on places like Reddit and the conspiracy subreddit. It's now literally just screenshots of twit tweets. <laughs> and it's a screenshot of a tweet of a headline of an article. <laughs> so you don't even get a link to the article, let alone actually read it. You just see the, the headline. Or you just see a quote that's just taken from some passage from something you don't know the context of it. And people are having entire conversations on that screenshot of a tweet 
and talking about it as if they know what that is about and they understand the whole story. And 99 times out of 100, when you go and actually, if you actually go and dig up the actual article or whatever is being discussed, you'll find, oh no, they're totally missing the point. This totally is being misrepresented. Anyway, I'm sure we've all encountered that. It's it's a problem. It really is a, a, a huge problem. And it leads, I think, nicely into number 12, which is people absolutely judge books by their covers. And in the modern age, that means they judge videos by their thumbnails <laughs> and or titles. It's basically a title and a thumbnail image will determine people what people whether people click at all or what they think about a given video or podcast. And again, I speak from 15 years of experience on this. I know that it's so strange to me, but the title will 99% of people will influence what they, the way they perceive what is the entire podcast. It doesn't matter if it's an hour long deep dive exploration topic or something. It's just the title will influence the way they perceive it, what they think about, what they choose to respond to the way that they respond to it. If people will react to the title. If the title is a question, even if the actual podcast is is an is an answer to that question or whatever it is, people will simply respond to the question in the title and disregard anything that was actually said in the podcast. Again, I have a lot of experience with this, and again, the thumbnail image can be the difference between something that gets a, a few people to talk and you know a few people watch and something that gets overwhelming attention. And that's you know that obviously as a content creator, that's disappointing. Because I'd like to think it's the content that makes people interested. It's the content that people are responding to. No, it's the thumbnail and the headline. 99 times out of 100. But I'm looking for that 1 out of 100 people who actually care about the content. So <laughs> perhaps I'm self-selecting by not being as clickbaity as possible. Um, number 13. You can't wake someone up who's pretending to be asleep. You might remember this inf insight from questions from Corbett number 65 on how do I wake up my friends and family, where I was talking about people who are saying, you know, I'm trying to get my brother interested in this. I'm trying to convince my coworker, whatever it is. Um, but they just, they, they don't, you know, they, they, they're not getting it. How do I wake them up? The real answer to this is it's not like they, they're not sleeping. They, they see what you are saying. They, they, they can see the data as well. And whatever mental gymnastics they're doing to dismiss that is in their head. You cannot change what is happening in someone's head or the way that person is approaching this information. You can't change that. You can't be the, you can't flip that switch for them. If they don't want to see something, they will not see it. And going back to the earlier insight about people do not go by their feelings, not their rational, they don't rationally think their way into most of these deep, complex phenomena. They, they sort of feel them, and oh, I don't, oh, no, I, I'm not going there. And any mental gymnastic pretzel knot twist they have to do in order to avoid that information, they will do. Because, again, they're pretending to be asleep. That's an important one. That's an important insight, not so much as it will help you to help wake up other people, but so that you don't take the onus upon yourself. It is my responsibility what happens in that person's head. No, 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 no. That, that, that's really bad, because it... Unfortunately, it will lead to heartache for people. I just, I can't get my my friend to see the truth. Whatever it is. All right. Uh, number 14. Everyone thinks that they are an expert at breaking down video evidence. And everyone is wrong about that. <laughs> and I have some, I, again, I have some personal experience with this from my 15 years of doing this. One example of that is... When James Evan Pilato came here to Japan to meet me in in real life for the first time, first time we were meeting, I've been doing the New World Next Week series with him for a decade. We'd known each other for a couple of years before that point. I talked to him more than I talked to my family back in Canada. I, He's a friend, and yet I never met him, never once met him in real life. So... Uh, as I wrote about in an article um, after the, after Pilata went home, I wrote, Upon Meeting a Friend for the First Time. Uh, and I, I noted in that article that me and Brock had a side bet when James and Pilata was coming over. Um, do you think he's taller or shorter than me? How, how high, how tall do you think James and Pilato is? Because, of course, you can see him in his room there. You might have some idea of the scale, but you don't really know his actual height. And is he going to be tall? He looks like he could be one of those really lean, tall, beanpole kind of guys, right? And is he going to be, how tall is he going to be? 
Anyway, so me and Brock had that side bet. And as I note in that article, well, we, we found out and the bet was settled. But I'm not going to tell you. And you don't know. Because, again, this is the, this is the nature of it. It's the digital. Uh, you think you, well, you see me, but you don't know me. You don't, you don't see my actual physical corporeal body in real life. So there are certain things that you do not know about people, even however well you know them digitally, right? Um, anyway, I thought that was a profound philosophical point, but actually in the comments, a lot of people were arguing, yes, I know, I can tell, I can work out from the video exactly how tall Plato is and how tall you are, and there were people who were doing these breakdowns of, okay, the bench that you're sitting on has a back and it's about this high, so we can calculate then that Plato is this tall. <laughs> there were these complicated trigonometry kind of things going on, and I can tell you every single thing that people were guesstimating and trying to speculate on and measuring and calculating was wrong and they arrived at the wrong conclusion <laughs> but they were very confident about it and, and so anyway uh, I mean, literally people were talking about things that they thought that they saw in the background of the video that weren't there and then calculating heights based off of that and the way we were sitting in the video you couldn't see how close I was to the camera, how far away I was, or Pilato, or where we were sitting, whether we're sitting on an even surface, or just basic things that you would need to know in order to even begin approximating heights. But people were very confident about it because you feel like you know. You can, I can see, I can, I kind of know. You don't, you really don't. And people who work with photography and videography will know things like that. But people who don't, don't. And the fact that they don't know what they don't know actually leads them to be way overconfident on things like that. Now, that's a trivial example. How high is Pilato? How tall is Corbett? Who cares, right? But when it gets into really important things, like the 2015 Paris attacks or something like that, people are analyzing and, and talking about things that they know. That, oh, this couldn't have happened because, look, uh, this grainy, out-of-focus, far-away cell phone camera footage shot in under street lamp light from 400 yards away. I can tell that's not the way the brains would explode if they were really shooting someone. So it's, it's a crisis actor. These kinds of like elaborate conclusions that people are certain about because they know what they're seeing. And I, I know you don't know what you're seeing. You really don't. So I think there's a profound point there. It goes beyond just sort of eyeballing things from video or photograph evidence into the sort of broader nature of digital mediated reality versus actual real reality. There is a difference, and we sometimes are overconfident in what we think we know about the world through, from what we know through screens. That's a very dangerous thing. All right, and finally, number 15, the Library of Alexandria is on fire. I know you know this by now because I've talked about it many, many times over the years, most obviously in my podcast episode on The Library of Alexandria is on Fire. <laughs> you might remember that podcast episode, right? Um, but yes, this is something I've been pointing out pretty much since the beginning of the Corporate Report. Uh, the possibility of digital censorship, the Ministry of Truth, all of this, I've obviously I've talked about it many, many years. And now what do we see? The U.S. government, the Department of Homeland Security literally coming out with what not literally the Ministry of Truth, but Disinformation Governance Board. It's obvious. It's so obvious right now. Everyone knows it is happening. Everyone sees it as the transparent sham that it is. But it is happening. And real information is being destroyed every single day online. Everyone has seen this over the past couple of years. I used to be, I know this video exists. I can't find it now. I know this article is out there. I, no matter what search term I use, I can't bring it up. I don't know where it went. Yeah, the Library of Alexandria is on fire. Things are being destroyed even as we speak. This is a serious problem. And at least, at the very least, I guess the, the bright spot, this, the silver linings of the dark cloud, is that people are aware of this now. So now people are actually thinking about how to take steps to do something about that. And on that note, of course, you will remember that I used to have the uh, Corporate Report data DVD archive in order to help preserve the Corporate Report information, at the very least, for posterity's sake. So some people might have some of these DVDs kicking around in their collection. You'll remember it was the actual data, the MP3, MP4, HTML files of every single podcast episode, every video, every article from each given year of the Corporate Report website was on this data DVD series um, that I was... I was selling until COVID-1984, 
And then suddenly, I can't, I literally can't ship packages around the world anymore. I still can't ship packages, even to my home and native land of Canada. So that ended rather abruptly. And now to this day, every single week, I get two, three, four, sometimes more people every single week asking, do you still sell those data movies? No, and so unfortunately I don't. But, hey, it's the 15th anniversary, so let's do something special. Introducing the Corbett Report Data Archive. Yes, let's get with the times. Not a data DVD, a flash drive, a USB flash drive. You can stick in your device and download all of the data from each given year of the Corporate Report website, just like the data DVDs, but a USB drive, um, probably more convenient. And so uh, it, I am announcing this today. It is now available for sale at newworldnextweek.com. And the way it's going to work, it's similar to the data DVDs, each year will be on its own USB flash drive. Uh, that will vary from five or six gigabytes up to, I think, 22 gigabytes or something, depending on the year. Um, some years got really crazy. <laughs> but again, every single video, every article, every uh, uh, interview, podcast, everything will be in data form on these thumb drives and in the best possible um, format that I have, um, including the, the video files will be 720p if I have the 720p video file so it will be the best possible quality of each thing that I have um, so again you can help preserve if not the library of Alexandria at least the corporate report library now of course let me state as always you do not have to buy anything all of this data is 100% freely available for download right that's uh, that's James Corbett uh, a man who's worth keeping an eye on uh, definitely somebody who knows his re knows how to research and knows how to interpret stuff um, yeah, a man, a man who deserves to have his stuff spread around, so that's what I'm doing. Uh, that's enough for now, I think. We're coming up to 55 minutes, so we're getting to the point of, of the end of the show. So I shall do another one of these this afternoon, possibly another one this evening. Um, see if we can get two hours in per day on Tuesday, Wednesdays and Thursdays. But in two or three sections, I think, two or three different shows. It gives, gives BitChute a chance to update and something, a chance to happen in between. All right, so that's enough for me. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next time.